0: Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Julia Georgia. I'm with the Middle East Institute and Georgetown University, and I'm joined today by my colleague.
1: Daliboru Hash from AEI.
0: On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that have erupted along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. We're joined today by Ani Shrikvatse, um, who is a journalist um, with um, Voice of America on the Georgia service. And we're keen to hear about um, where Georgia stands um, vis-a-vis um, the um, Russian invasion of Ukraine and on the Eastern Front. But before we do that, I want to turn to Dalibor. Dalibor, what are you seeing and um, what should be w- we be looking out for?
1: Julia, thank you so much. Uh, so I should say that our colleague Giselle is taking a day off, but I'm thrilled that we have Annie with us. Uh, Annie has been a friend for for, for, for many years. And I, uh, I I do feel bad because whenever she invites me to you know exciting mm-hmm. evening functions that have to do with Eastern Europe, with Georgia, with 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 countering Russian influence, I always have to decline being a father of a toddler and and having a needy dog at home. Uh, you know, I have no social life. So, so at least we are making up for that by having her <laughs> on the on the podcast. Uh, we should say about Annie that she uh, grew up in Georgia. She came of age uh, during the time of of the Rose Revolution and 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 and, and this extraordinary wave of political reforms in the mid '90s. And she also lived through um, the 2008 uh, Russian war against Georgia uh, in, in, in in Georgia. And maybe that might be a good way to start because many people who sort of talk about what is currently happening in Ukraine frame it in, in, in the sort of notion that uh, that is somehow unprecedented and nobody could have seen this coming yet. There were many people who saw this coming uh, on this podcast. I cited this open letter by a group of Eastern European leaders to the Obama administration, which was written after the Russian invasion of uh, of, 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 of Georgia. So so, so, so I suppose uh, the way we can kick this off is, is really to turn to Annie and ask her about the ramifications that uh, that war, that 2008 war had on politics in Georgia itself and the sort of legacy it left uh the sort of lurking shadow of you know a frozen conflict within georgia and 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 how it sort of shaped politics going forward to this to this present day
2: well thank you very much julia and dalibor thanks for having me before i start i have to say that um, you know uh my positions do not represent positions of u.s government or us agency for global media i'm here in personal capacity um as a journalist uh To your question, Dalibor, uh, well, in 2008, the times were different, yes, I mean, it was uh, very, you know, George Bush administration was in uh, you know late years. It was a lame duck administration when when uh, Russia invaded uh, Georgia. Uh, it happened during the Olympics. Uh, we have we have to remember that in August when all the attention was at Beijing again. Um, a little uh, coincidence uh, we can say it happened when France was also leader of the you know European Union or European Council. Uh, also a coincidence. Uh, but um, yeah, so the. Uh, the five-day of war we saw in two thousand eight uh, was something that um, people in Eastern Europe ahead of August were uh, warning Washington about. Uh, but I, I will backtrack before the war uh, before I get to the war because this is uh, this is critical. Uh, right before the war, there was a summit of uh, NATO in Bucharest, uh, in which uh, at this summit. Uh, Vladimir Putin even attended it uh, and, uh, you know, tried to tell the Western counterparts that, you know, enlargement of the NATO towards the east uh, to Georgia and Ukraine would be a mistake. He tried to prevent, um, you know, Western leaders granting Georgia and Ukraine membership action plan. This, in a way, uh, led to the opposition uh, to George Bush administration's very active efforts, actually, at, at that point, they were even negotiating on behalf of Georgia and Ukraine with, with the, you know, European allies to try to grant membership action plan to NATO, to these two countries. But in the end, Washington was not able to convince the Europeans. Uh, um, this was caused by, you know, multiple factors. Some say this was Russian pressure. Others say that it was, uh, you know, lame duck administration. But also, uh, you know, invasion of uh, Iraq uh, and all the disagreements uh, with uh, with the Europeans that led to um, to refusal of uh, Berlin and uh, Paris, uh, primarily, uh, to Washington's proposal to grant. Uh, Georgia and Ukraine um, MAP. But then a compromise was found at that summit um, in Bucharest that Georgia and Ukraine would become members of the NATO. Uh, This was um, famously um, a compromise coming from Angela Merkel, um, who I think in a meeting uh, with uh, President Bush uh, offered to write this down in in the summit declaration. you know depends on which side of the argument you are you can say that this was a signal to moscow that west was uh, um you know undecided on the fate of this country countries and there was no firm stance on on uh, whether or not to give give them you know path towards nato or others could say that this decision uh, on the other side of the argument actually um you know angered moscow uh and uh Few months later, we saw, uh, you know, the tensions flare up in Georgia's um, occupied region of uh, South Ossetia, uh, Tskhinvali region, uh, and you know there were skirmishes between the forces. I mean, between the local uh, supported separatists. Uh, something we saw now leading up to the Ukrainian crisis, like similar thing, where like you know they uh, there was a flare up um, uh, right before the war. The uh, city their so-called capital of the so-called republic uh Tshinwali was evacuated women and children were withdrawn um you know taken away like uh for four days before the war uh second of august or so then the war uh started on the night of uh seventh and um georgians were telling uh western counterparts then that Russia was preparing for the war, but nobody wanted to believe this because it was unimaginable that one country would invade another country uh, after you know 1989, after this uh, new era of uh, of of our life uh, or Euro- on the European continent, uh, and so there was like somewhat a um, desire to. To uh, forget, you know, to not acknowledge it, and then we saw also when the war actually started out on the night of the seventh, that lots of lots of media and you know some leaderships as well were blaming Georgia for 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 starting the attack and uh, or uh, on Russia, and this was uh, for many years a narrative until lately. Then we have shifted now the narrative where we say Georgia was. Slowly, we we said that Georgia was provoked into into uh, responding. Now I think we've finally gotten to the point when uh, when people say that of course this was a, this was Russia's invasion of Georgia and Russia was uh, was the author of, of of this. I'll stop here and uh, we can continue talking about it. But yeah, don't want to um, take too
0: much time. Thank you for for giving this um, overview and and with a with a risk of being a bit all over the place. I just want to connect these thoughts um, kind of through my personal experience. So one thing that I'm curious and, and this would be my first question, you manage um, you you mentioned um, 2008 as being the start um, as a surprise for some and not a surprise for others. But we had already seen Russia's aggression um, and invasions and occupation in the early 90s at the moment of the dissolution of the Soviet Union. We had seen that in Moldova. We see it in Georgia. So how do you make sense um, of that? But then in between... Um, it's you mentioned the Bucharest summit. Um, that's interesting. I was um, I wasn't part of it. I was a student then, um, but I, I was there, and I remember how Putin initially decided not to come, and then when he saw the announcement, he flew in big time. Another coincidence is 2008 was the last time that in Romania, my country, a high level politician from the United States representative was there. Today, it's the first time ever since 2008 with Vice President Kamala Harris being in Bucharest as we speak. So another interesting coincidence. Um, And then a few months later, when um, Russia invaded Georgia, Um, I saw the international reaction. I was um, back then working at the United Nations and I was at the press um, conference of then ambassador of Georgia to the UN, Alasanya. I saw the tears in his eyes. I saw him begging for um, international aid and I saw the Russian ambassador freaking out and saying nasty things and I saw how the international community reacted in terms of lack of response. Um, And then here we are today with, uh, what are we now, the 16th day into the second invasion of Russia um, uh, into Ukraine. And uh, we see the EU and NATO patting themselves on the back for helping, but I'm not sure that they really are um, as much as they should. Well, I'm pretty sure that they aren't. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and we also see the risks of this um, escalating um, into other, um, other regions and other countries. And Georgia has taken a certain position similar to Moldova in um, not imposing sanctions. Um, And yet in Georgia, we've seen some of the most spectacular um, public demonstrations, including with that um, speech of Zelensky in um, um, projected outside in Tbilisi. So can you help us make sense of the of how you see the situation, um, um, of Russian aggression back to the nineties, the commonality between Georgia and Moldova, but also to today, how you assess what is happening in Georgia, um, in terms of, um, public Mm -hmm. and governmental.
2: Well, well, um, you know, um, you raise a good point uh, the information and the knowledge on on that on nineties that what was happening uh, during nineties is limited in in the West partly because uh you know the uh, george Bush administration in the beginning um, was as you remember he was uh you know the famous Kiev uh, that chicken kiev speech in which he was urging ukrainians to stay as part of the soviet union and you know not to dis you know basically distract um or uh, dissolve the soviet union uh, and he in that speech also was talking about the challenges of nationalism it was after 1989 uh, it was after a lot of demonstrations in central and eastern europe that were of the nationalist character there was a fear on the european continent about it and so the conflicts that emerged during those times, early 90s, um, there was certain willingness to see that as a nationalist conflict, and the Russian factor was ignored. While uh, Russia was actively helping the mm. um, Georgia's two separatist regions uh, uh, militarily uh, and otherwise uh, you know, against the central government, we saw same in uh, Transnistria where the Russian army is still located and was located and was uh, fighting on the side of um, you know, uh, Transnistria separatists against um, uh Kishinev or Chichen Um and then you saw Karabakh conflict as well. I mean, there was a lot of of course, some of it was rooted in ethnonationalism. However, the Russian support was critical for these, um, you know, tiny republics. If you think about it, like Abkhazia is, uh, I think, by their own calculation, two hundred thousand people, like the whole area, and South Ossetia is thirty thousand people, which is basically now a Russian military base there. But. Um, You know, with their aid, with the Russian Moscow's aid, is how they achieved success against against the central governments in respective countries. I mean, Karabakh is a bit more complicated subject, so I'm not gonna go into details. But there as well, Moscow did not play a role of trying to stop the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan and uh, famously they stepped in uh, pretty late. Um, so that was 90s, but the idea in Washington was that Russia was now a partner, you know, Washington was working with Russia for that first decade uh you know liberalizing the economy lots of russian um you know lots of american experts as well as like businessmen were going to moscow it was honeymoon period um same time moscow was weak uh economically and on international scale it was a different different russia that did not pose as as much of a challenge uh as that we saw later and then this whole situation um changes and i don't know how many basics you want me to say but i mean this turns around when uh, vladimir putin comes to power at the end of a uh, century and starts his campaign in chechnya which according to many experts helps him actually uh somebody who was not known to anybody you know when he came to power he was picked by the oligarchs around the uh, around um, elsin uh and then uh then he rose to prominence uh, based on the Chechnya campaign. Uh, Chechnya and Grozno famously was destroyed to the ground. Uh, the insurgency there uh, was uh, crashed. Many Chechens had to leave and flee, and to this day they live uh, outside the country. Um, and that was a conflict that uh, you know created Putin in a way and created the, the him uh, as a. As a president and as somebody who was a decision maker and soon he then turned against all the oligarchs who brought him to power and there was a trial of yukos and the arrest of Khadarkovsky, boris Berezovsky left the country uh and i'm not gonna go into a lot of details of how he got rid of the people uh, who brought him to power and created his own class of uh, class of uh, oligarchs um and then fast forward you have then with start of putin presidency you have initial attempt from washington president george bush's bush administration George w bush's administration um tries to start on a good foot you remember the famous line of president bush where he looked in his eyes and like you know so um you know saw his soul um
1: his ranch in crawford
2: Yeah, exactly. So um, that Washington was trying to continue like, you know, positive relationship. And interestingly, every president, but probably President Biden now because uh, uh, of the circumstances, but every president since has tried, every American president has tried to start with the same kind of attempt uh, to restart to a certain extent, relationship with with Russia and or or at least uh, re- rhetorically speaking, um, President Obama, President Trump as well. So then, the mm-hmm, sorry, I don't
1: want to. Uh... can I just maybe interrupt you for a, for a, for a second? As it's an, I know it's an awful thing to do to interrupt a guest, but 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 I think it's a, it's a really interesting sort of thread that that you pulled on this this pattern that goes back, uh, really to like you know, early Northeast uh, of of sort of memory holding all the bad things that that the Putin regime does and, and, and trying to sort of start afresh, right? Like sort of the 2008 war because of the various things related to, you know, like changing administration in the US and, you know, many other things were happening in the world, financial crisis, like yeah. that sort of in the West became forgotten yeah. within months. Right. And and, That's and then the people are sort of surprised if, in twenty fourteen. Oh my goodness. One. What is
2: <laughs> well said.
1: And, 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 and he sort of keeps doing these things and and, and, and and we sort of keep repeating the same mistakes almost. Like how how do you account for the sort of absence of of a sort of more strategic longer term outlook on the part of the West?
2: I mean, I don't have a direct answer. Some could point to the problems of the, you know, short term politics in Washington, maybe like, you know, loss of bipartisan agreement on certain issues. But also probably uh, just the idea that we, uh, that people in the West unlike us in the East, so to say, are all, always focused on, on solving issues like, uh, you know, solving conflicts between that while uh you know russia and moscow can live with the conflict so every administration has circled back and tried to solve the differences but russia is fine with the differences it's fine with having you know not never reaching an agreement with us on on some of the issues and in 2008 yes um the president bush administration which actually if we discuss the response to the military uh, to the war itself uh, there are like some bold steps that the President Bush administration at that point made, and I can expand on that. But a uh, few months later, uh, Bush leaves. President Obama takes office and resets relationship with Moscow, which, as we all know, was not was not did not live for a long time. Um, but literally, no sanctions remain in place. Everybody wants to forget that war took uh, place in Georgia everybody wants to think that it was Georgia's fault and and or at least say that in a way to to not to have act on it because uh, if it was not Georgia's fault then like what are we doing to to punish Russia so we all wanted to forget it we I mean the people in the West wanted to forget about it uh and then you know you yourself are from Central Europe uh uh we are anyways always viewed as uh, in in that part of the world as uh, hawkish or uh, in a way having this irrational uh, attitudes towards russia because of history and uh, such so the arguments we make cannot be taken uh seriously because of course we are just uh, biased Judging from our, from the history, and it does not apply to the present, but we have not come to the realization of that. But as we see now, in case of Ukraine, where I don't even I don't have words to describe what's I mean uh, what's happening there. Um, you know, unimaginable, unimaginable campaign. Uh, I think we we had a pretty good idea uh, of what to expect.
1: Yeah, still, still awaiting the apology from, from those who sort of dismissed these concerns as <laughs> hysterical. Can,
0: can I build a little bit on that? Because I find this thread really interesting too and kind of adding on to what Dalibor was saying and asking you, so we are all in agreement here <laughs> in terms of Central and Eastern Europe versus West, but I want to ask you how you perceive the risks of this happening despite the atrocities over and over again. And I'll give you one example. Um, Someone uh, from an expert on security policy, um, clearly on the right side of things uh, from Germany, was mentioning um, yesterday, I think, that she keeps getting from German journalists the question, what can Germany offer Russia? And to me, this is like, do you want to offer them a piece of your land? Because Germany has no say in, in Central and Eastern Europe. And, and it builds into exactly where, to me, Putin is trying to push the West with those demands. Oh, the United States and NATO should overrule over Ukraine, over Central and Eastern Europe, and decide that Ukraine should be neutral or get partitioned. And so... How big of a risk is that in your assessment when it comes to overall West, when it comes to these tendencies that we see, um, that we, we in Central and Eastern Europe have seen before in 2014, in 2008, etc., to be soon in the same place, despite of what's happening on the ground?
2: It's, you know, it's interesting because in 2008, at Bu- in, in Bucharest, when Germany was opposing giving a membership action plan to Ukraine and Georgia, Merkel famously said that a country with the existing, on Georgia, existing territorial conflict cannot cannot become a member of, of um, the NATO, which angered people in Tbilisi because, well, Germany became member of the NATO, you know, being divided. Uh, so, and we do have other examples as well, like in case of Cyprus and so on, but that's for another argument as for the um uh, response uh, from the west i mean um and i mean i think there has been a divide also in a way between the continental europe and uh, washington and how how they uh respond to to these cases uh in 2014 uh, when uh, you know annexation of crimea and um you know eastern ukrainian conflict started uh and the sanctions were introduced you will remember also the um huge debates that, that were in washington about whether we should have given uh, defensive uh, weapons to ukraine and that uh, that decision was not made by the obama administration then only after the ch- change of administration did we see the change of the policy uh but also like um you know r- moscow is i i'm trying to avoid like expressing many of my opinions i'm going to try to just describe of what we have seen uh but uh you know moscow is aware of the disagreements that exist on both sides of the atlantic and within within the um alliance on you know continental in europe and has relied on that as as a way of like um Thinking that okay, a few years will pass and the sanctions will, um, you know, well, will resolve itself or the sanctions will be removed. And in some cases, yes, that he's been right. That also the sanctions were not as, uh, you know, they annexed a huge part of Ukraine like first time since this, you know, in, in this century, uh, and. Uh, if you look at our response now, and if you look at our response uh, at Western response in two thousand fourteen, it's a day and night. So um, obviously, they also got away with with that. They got away with uh, the simmering conflict in uh, Donbas, uh, in which actually Ukrainian forces have uh, for eight years been pretty uh, strong and uh, fighting back and taking some territory territory back. Um, but uh, what was the question again? Because I kind of lost the trail now. Of like What's the risk? I, yeah. What's the
0: risk of of going back to the I mean, same is, patterns?
2: Yeah, there is, Kaya. Honestly, now when I'm watching things in Kiev, the question I see people ask in Georgia and uh, elsewhere is, "All oh, right, so um, what happens if Kiev falls? If Kiev falls, uh, and uh, uh, nobody knows how that will look, but." or let's take if Kiev accepts neutrality towards uh, towards NATO and the European Union. uh, What does that mean for the region and for for the rest of us? Uh, Does that mean that we are decidedly in a grey zone where this is our future, where if we are attacked, we don't really receive much of the supports, and uh, there is a disagreement how much support we should be given? in a way that undermines the thirty years of Western policy, thirty years of investment of money in, in, in democracy building, in uh, in um, you know all the security assistance, everything like the Western policy toward Georgia, Ukraine, uh, Moldova, uh, it it puts that upside down uh, because uh, that tells us, and especially tells those people in those countries who are fighting for for like you know integration with the with the west it it kind of deletes an argument from that like what what's the argument you tell a politician or an activist in Georgia or Ukraine from now on tells the population like why should you why should we want to to be in this country you know in NATO and why should we want to be in the European Union if there is such a huge re- re- reluctance and no one's come to our defense uh if and it will result, if it will result into Russian aggression that nobody will defend us against so it's really uh, it really shakes up this whole um Narrative uh, and even in Georgia, where the population and you mentioned, this, Islamic um, population in large numbers is uh, demonstrating now in support of Ukraine and uh, against the Georgian government, which has been famously uh, pretty silent about the whole uh, whole affair. Um, you know it strips us of the argument uh, strips those people who are pro west and uh, the argument uh, that like uh, what are the reasons to why we should look uh, westward
1: i think it's even worse than that in a way so so when you think about the the, the case of ukraine and, and this thought experiment that you outlined is really interesting so what happens if you know either the zelensky government falls or Kiev falls or some sort of deal is struck through which ukrainians renounce their ambitions to to join the eu and nato um well I don't think that's that's Putin's ultimate goal right that's sort of an intermediate step yeah. like Putin wants Ukraine out of NATO for a reason and the reason is that he wants to have free reign destabilizing the country and keeping the country from being a success story that 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 you know Russians could look at and and try to emulate at home so 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 it really is a sort of one-way ticket to a destination which which is decidedly unhappy for 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 Ukrainians. I don't think that sort of I you know, even people who sort of talk about Finlandization uh, realize that 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 it is not tolerable for the Kremlin to have a sort of successful yet neutral country on this on its doorstep. The way that you know you could sort of point to Finland or Austria during the during the Cold War period. So so I think it's 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 it's. Just a
2: I I mean, it's impossible. Yes, you yeah, know. it would
1: be decidedly a, a, a massive defeat for 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 for, for the West and, and and for anybody who thinks that there is some value in, in you know, having more free, democratic, self-governing nations in the world rather than more autocracies and and dictatorships. But I want to turn this back to to to, to Georgia, um, if okay. I may, and we are sort of running low on time, uh, so. So Georgia has been governed for a while by um, this Georgian Dream Party, a sort of catch-all political group. There was an election in 2020, uh, which I suppose was sort of contested by the by the opposition uh, and also yeah. the Georgian Dream Party. Uh, I think as as you said, sort of remains somewhat silent on on, on on this on this particular question of 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 Ukraine, but also has tried to somehow improve relations with Moscow. That's at least sort of my sort of very mm-hmm. sort of naive, remote reading of things. Uh but it looks like it's facing a public that is reminding you know, the government and, and, and also the West of of, of of this deep-seated Georgian ambition to be a normal country again. I mean, and by normal, I mean one yeah. that is integrated with, with, with the West. So how do you think that's going to play out? I, I imagine Georgians are now more active trying to, again, like get West to commit to...
2: Yeah, it's actually pretty... You
1: know, Faster uh, integration timeline. So so, so, so where, where is this headed in the case well, of Georgia? Well,
2: I mean, it, this government that came to power in 2012 has uh, tried to have this balancing act of like uh, with, with Russia publicly because Georgian public remains very pro-Western. So they could not publicly say, uh, state that actually we are, you know, refusing our aspirations and we want to be, rather be with Moscow. They can't say that because then that will, you know, we, we we see now like the protest that, that causes. Uh, but that balancing act I think has come um uh, to an end at this point. Uh and now in a way in a public space it's becoming obvious with the statements from the Prime Minister, from different MPs that that um you know, even though they explain it with the pragmatic approach and they say we have a pragmatic approach and our approach is to avoid war, um we've seen certain like decisions that like uh a line, and nobody i'm not going to speculate whether they are uh, you know agreed or directed but in line with with moscow over, over the years um uh, will it be on like, you know cancellation of this big port project uh on the black sea will it be on like you know now allowing georgians to fight on the ukrainian side and um you know Zelensky uh, because of that uh, recalled the ambassador from georgia in, in this crisis with the, which is you know, unprecedented uh, Georgia and Ukraine always were making a case together so now there is a huge huge drift um, and then you have also a, with one hand because Georgian Dream stands also on this uh, its electorate belongs to this like uh, it caters to this electorate like it helps these groups on the ground that are pro-Russian groups openly pro-Russian groups and or supported by Moscow that uh, when the government itself cannot say something and you see that the government relies on these groups uh, to, to communicate like, will it be like, and I mean, will it be attacking like, you know, young people demonstrating against club raid, and then you see these groups uh, attacking them, like physically. Or will it be like um, you know I don't gay gay rights demonstration and then you see these groups emerging as well and they have some sort of a pact with with this uh, with these uh, pro Russian groups who, and they've uh, made and over the years this have made these groups uh strong there is no um they never get any strong sentences i mean it caused the death of a journalist six months ago uh but no one's been uh kept accountable for it uh so like on the grassroots this uh um uh, helps the right pro-russian narrative in the country now you see also like on a state policy as well uh pretty direct uh incline, you know declarations that like we are not gonna um, join in here, even though we have Russian troops like 20 kilometers. It's like having Russian troops in Arlington, you know, <laughs> very close uh, to the to the capital. Uh, but we are not joining in on sanctions. We are not uh, diplomatically now uh, supporting Ukraine. And the Georgian government's um, statements uh, have been pretty well. They've been condemned by 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 uh, Kiev, actually. Um, and so I don't know what else to say. I think uh, in a way this is uh, uh, this is going to make it challenging for, for the opposition uh, to make a case as well because, uh, I don't know, let's say we've got a... This government is very much... I think Moscow is happy with, with the Georgian government. Right now uh, they've said that they've said as much. And uh, let's say this government changes uh, through elections, uh, hopefully, or maybe not, so what happens next? If if the government of Georgia or that Russia is happy with is not in, in Tbilisi, then do we also see the same campaign in Georgia? Uh, is that something that that's like you know that we should expect? And this is also a fear that probably population also has, and I don't know how that will translate in uh, in in future of in future of Georgia.
0: It seems to me that we're facing across the Eastern Front, um, no pun intended this time, um, within the structures of NATO and EU on one side and outside of them in Georgia, in Moldova, um, really big challenges in terms of internal divisions as well as the Western risk of taking away agency from Central and Eastern Europe, as we see, um, we see risks and voices like that um, uh, on Ukraine as well. And so, um, thank you, Annie, so much for highlighting. Um, what we should be, how we should actually understand what is happening in the region and how big the challenges are um, that we're facing beyond um, what is obviously um, the most um, terrible site in Ukraine and and how bravely they fight against that. Um, we have officially ran out of time, but thank you, Annie, so much for, for um, joining us. Uh, from me, Yulia Zorza, and from my friend, Dalvaro And Giselle, who's absent, uh, thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, ai.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and until next time, goodbye.